The Bible tells us here in verse number 13, Paul writing to the believers at Thessalonica, and the word asleep in this passage is a euphemism for the Christian who has died. So he says, but I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are dead in Christ or asleep, that you sorrow not even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus, Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep or are dead in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. And Father, we do seek your word today as we come and gather as your church, and we're so thankful for this assembly of believers. Thank you for what you have done in and through this church. I pray that you would bless the services today. God, I pray that you would open our ears and our hearts to understand what's going on in the world and help us to be prepared for the glorious return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name and God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated this morning. Well, we have spent the last two Sundays uh, pausing our study through the Gospel of Matthew that we've been journeying through for the last couple years to look at some things that are going on in our present world. And as we talked about two weeks ago, Israel and the end times, last Sunday we looked at Israel and Islam in the last days, and today we're going to be looking at Israel, the Ezekiel War, and the rapture. And so this week you have seen continued anti-Semitic actions going on in the world. You don't see Islamophobe, you see anti-Semitic spirits, right? In Berlin, Germany, of all places... A synagogue was firebombed. Berlin, Germany. In Vienna, imagine if you're a Jew living in Germany today. In Vienna, a one-time hub of Nazism, a synagogue was attacked and vandalized. In Paris, a Jewish couple's apartment door was doused with gasoline and set on fire. In Los Angeles, a knife-wielding madman trespassed into a Jewish home shouting, Free Palestine. At George Washington University in the nation's capital, student jihadists projected glory to our martyrs onto the side of a school library. At Cooper Union, Jewish students were literally locked in a library by pro-Hamas students, demonstrators banging on the doors, and the New York Police Department had to evacuate the Jewish students in an underground tunnel. The Jews in the Haggadah read this text in their Passover. It says, in every generation they rise up to destroy us, but the Holy One, blessed is He, delivers us from their hands. Now less than 80 years since the defeat of Nazi Germany, today's Nazis, known as the Alamist Reich, if you would, are once again seeking to genocide the Jewish people, trying to finish what Hitler could not do. And so somebody asked me this last week, they said, how could we pray for Israel? 
The Bible says in Psalm 122, verse 6, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. They shall prosper that love thee. And we need to pray for the leaders of Israel that they would have wisdom as they are in this war. Um, pray for those innocent lives, both in Israel and Gaza, for safety. Some people are calling for a ceasefire. A cease, did, did, did America have a ceasefire after 9 11? <laughs> Do you have a ceasefire when, 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 when people who come in and kill you and then you say, put down your weapons, don't fire? If Israel put down its weapons, do you think Hamas would? I mean, it's, 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 it's a level of foolishness. We need to pray that God would bring good out of this difficult situation. We need to pray that Jews and Palestinians alike would come to faith through this in God's own sovereign workings, that God's will and kingdom would bring to pass his desire. And also pray for America's leaders to have wisdom in this. Um, this, this is on the verge of a global conflict, isn't it? I mean, since October 17th, there have been at least 20 attacks on American soldiers in Syria and Iraq. 20 by Iranian proxies. They're flying drones in and 21 soldiers, over 20 soldiers were injured. America sent a couple F-16s to shoot some soft targets to try to let them know back off. But I can tell you they only respond to one thing and that's strong force. Peace did not... Uh, um, peace talks did not bring peace in World War II. Appeasement doesn't work. Sometimes you have to use force. But Isaiah 46, verse 9 and 10, the Bible tells us this, because, you know, people have long sought to know the future. They, they desire to know what's going to come to pass. Um, there's movies and TV shows and people projecting what might come. But there's only one who knows. Isaiah 46 verse 9 says, Remember the former things of old. I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me. Is that a pretty big statement? And, 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 and one of the ways that he declares he is God, he says, Declaring the end from the beginning. God's able to tell you what's going to happen. And from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand I will do all my pleasure. Praise God that there is one at the driver's seat. Praise God that there is a sovereign God. Amen. One of the names that the Jews give to God is the name El Olam. It means the God who sits in eternity. He is the one who knows the end from the beginning. That's why more than 25% of the Bible is prophetic approximately one-third of it has yet to be fulfilled. No prophecy of the Bible has more attention given to it than the second coming of Christ. Dr. Lewis Johnson, the latest esteemed professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, said, we certainly can say it is the most prophesied event in the Bible. There is no other event in Holy Scripture that has much of the divine revelation given to it than the second coming of Jesus Christ. For every prophecy of Christ's first coming, there are eight on his second coming in Scripture. Just think about that. And if he came the first time, exactly as he said, do you think he's coming back again? But Jesus does not set dates. He rather focuses on the importance of us to be ready all the time. Listen to the repeated warning from God's word on our need to be prepared 
Matthew 24, 36, Jesus says, But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. He says in Matthew 24, 42, Watch therefore, for ye know not what hour the Lord doth come. Verse 44, Therefore be ye also ready, for in such an hour as ye think not the Son of Man cometh. 1 Thessalonians 5, 2, For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord cometh as a thief in the night. 2 Peter 3, 10, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Revelation 3, 3, Jesus says, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Uh, Christ has called us to be prepared. Revelation 16, 15, he says, behold, I come as a thief. And so you see the imminence of his coming. The, the God, Christ could rapture up his church at any time. The seven-year tribulation could launch off, and then his second coming would be at the end of that. Preparedness, though, is what God is telling us to be in position for, to be prepared for his coming. The New Testament church lived in expectation of the coming of Christ. They were constantly speaking about this over and over throughout the New Testament, dozens and dozens of times. Paul said in Philippians 3.20, for our conversation or citizenship is in heaven from whence we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul wrote to Titus and said in Titus 2.13, looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 3, 12, looking for and hastening unto the coming of the day of God. This is repeated constantly through the New Testament. Revelation opens up in Revelation 1, 7, and Jesus says, Behold, he cometh with clouds. He ends Revelation 22 the same way. And interestingly, in the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews gives an eschatological reason for being faithful to church. In Hebrews 10:25, he says, Not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. So be faithful to church because you can see that his coming is drawing near. Don't forsake the assembling together. You need to be in the house of God. Do you think it's been beneficial for you to sit in here the last two Sundays and hear some of these teachings? You think it's been better for you to be here than to sleep in and say, oh, I'm, I think I better get some extra rest? <laughs> Let me give you a little overview of the end time events, and I want to jump in. I have more to tell you today than I have time. This is just a constant pressure for me. And, um, but the next thing that will happen on God's time frame is the rapture of the church. It could happen at any moment. I'm going to talk about that today. The second event that will happen is a seven-year peace treaty, the 70th week of Daniel, seven-year period of tribulation that comes through. Two reasons for that is the judgment of this fallen world and also the redemption of the Jewish people. Revelation 6 through 18 give us the seven-year tribulation. Revelation 7 is 144,000 Jews that are sealed who become preachers of the gospel, and that happens. At the end of the seven-year tribulation will be a battle called the Battle of Armageddon. You read about that in Revelation chapter number 19. That goes into a thousand-year millennial reign of Christ. Jesus will set his kingdom up on this earth for 1,000 years. Satan will be bound for 1,000 years. How do we know that will happen? Because he says it six times. It will be a 1,000 years in Revelation chapter 20, verse 3 through 8. And, and Satan will be bound at the end of that thousand-year reign. Satan will be loose for a little season. He will go forth into the world to deceive people on the earth. Because what will happen is at the, at the end of the seven-year tribulation period, Jesus will come and take the lost from among the saved. When you read in the Bible where it says two men are in the field, one is taken and the other left, that is not the rapture. 
That is the second coming of Christ. They are not taken away in salvation. They are taken away in judgment. And I'll talk about that a little bit later today. But that is, so, so that, Matthew 24, that's what that's talking about. And, and they will be taken away in judgment. So there will be human beings that are alive on the earth. We will already have been raptured up. And when we come back at the end of the seven-year tribulation, we will enter the millennial kingdom in glorified bodies. But there will be also human beings on the earth. And the Bible says the Christians will uh, reign with Christ a thousand years as kings and priests of God. It says this multiple times in the book of Revelation. So those people who enter in will have children and population will explode during that time. But at the end of the thousand year millennial reign, Satan will be loosed from, his, um, from, from hell for a time. He will come forth and deceive the nations. There'll be a final battle known as the battle of Gog and Magog. And that is different than the battle of Ezekiel 38's Gog and Magog. And I could give you multiple reasons for that. But they are separated by about a thousand years. And in that final battle of Gog and Magog, uh, Satan will be defeated the, and, and cast into the lake of fire. That's Revelation 20. Then heaven and earth are dissolved. You have, a, uh, you have the final great white throne judgment when all the unbelievers will stand before God and they will be cast into the lake of fire, Revelation 20, verse 15, Revelation 20, verse 8. And then you go into eternity when God creates a new heaven and a new earth, Revelation 21 through chapter 22. How do we know that will happen? Because Elulam has told us. Because the God who sits in eternity, who says he alone is God and he alone can declare the end from the beginning, has said so. And we can have that assurance. And so today I want to talk about the signless event, which is the next event to happen on God's divine timetable, which is the rapture of the church. Now there are things going on today that point to the return of Jesus Christ. We have taken this three-week pause because of the war going on in Israel, and, and Israel has been called God's divine watch. Time has been set to this nation. The 70th week of Daniel, or the seven-year tribulation, is coming. Last Sunday, I briefly mentioned Ezekiel's war. Um, you may, if you're, you want to hold your place in First Thessalonians, you're welcome to turn back at this time to Ezekiel 38. I just need to give you some clarity on this. I could preach a sermon on it, but I don't have time. So Ezekiel 38. So let me just bring you into context. And I just, I'm just giving you some snapshots here today. But Ezekiel 38, 16 specifically refers to these events happening in the latter days. It speaks about the end times before Jesus comes and sets his kingdom up on earth for a thousand years. In Ezekiel 36 and 7, which we've discussed in the last couple weeks, speaks about God bringing the nation of Israel back into, uh, bringing the Jews back into the, the land of Israel to become a nation again. Ezekiel 36 and 7 were fulfilled in, on, on, in May of 1948 when they became a nation again. Listen to what Ezekiel 36 verse 24 says. God says, for I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all countries and bring you into your own land. From all the countries, he's going to bring them back. This prophecy is, is given dozens of times throughout the Old Testament. This is the, then it goes into chapter 37, the Valley of Dry Bones. Raise your hand if you've heard of the Valley of Dry Bones. It's, that's talking about these bones are dead. That's, it's, a re, it's a picture of the nation of Israel that's been dead for all these centuries and that God would put flesh back on them and bring them back into their land again. And, and so... 
Uh, Ezekiel 37, 12 says, Therefore prophesy and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Ezekiel 37, 21, And say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, I will take the children of Israel from among the heathen, whither they have gone, will gather them on every side, bring them into their own land. This is repeated again and again and again in 36 and 37. Now, in Ezekiel 38 and 9, it goes into a war that's going to happen that, that, that precedes the thousand-year millennial kingdom, a war that happens, uh, what it looks like in Scripture, at the end of the seven-year tribulation period, a battle known as the Battle of Gog and Magog. Ezekiel 40 through 48 then go into the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ. So Ezekiel 40 through 48 all have to do with the thousand-year millennial reign. Ezekiel 36 and 7 is Israel becoming a nation again, and seated between that is a war that Ezekiel 38 and 9 talk about that goes on in the Middle East. We're literally watching this war come in the pieces falling into place, which is why I need to mention this. Uh, listen to what Jewish convert to Christianity and once aide to Benjamin Netanyahu, Joel Rosenberg, reported. He said, now that the Jews are back in their land, the stage is being set for the next prophecy to come to pass, which Ezekiel here prophesies of as a confederacy of nations which will join together militarily to invade and destroy Palestine. Ronald Reagan believed the Ezekiel war would come. Edmund Morris, which is president, was President Reagan's official biographer, writes that Ezekiel was his favorite book of prophecy. Morris also recounted an intriguing scene as he personally witnessed in the Oval Office in which Reagan discussed Ezekiel's war with White House Chief of Staff Howard Baker and National Security Advisor Colin Powell. He said, when it comes Ezekiel 38.9, and I'm just condensing the conversation because it went on for like a half an hour, but it says, when it comes uh, Ezekiel 38.9, Reagan explained to his senior staff, the man who comes from the wrong side into the war is the man, according to the prophecies, named Gog from Meshach, which is the ancient name of Moscow. Uh, I tell you, Mr. President, Baker replied, I wish you'd quit talking about that. You're upsetting me. And uh, he was making him nervous because he kept going into all these, this Armageddon-type thing that, 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 that Reagan thought was going to happen. Now, Ezekiel 36 and 7 actually set the stage for this coming war. Look at Ezekiel 38, verse 1. It says this, And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, set thy face against Gog, the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and prophesy against him. Here in Ezekiel 38.2, we are told that the war is led by someone known as Gog. Uh, this is not a personal name. Rather, it is a title such as Pharaoh or Caesar. Gog is described as a military and political leader who builds a coalition. Verse 10 tells us he will have an evil thought or plan that he is formulating. What else do we know about him? Verse 2 tells us he comes from the land of Magog. When you do a little bit of investigating, you can find out where that is. Flavius Josephus, who is the famed uh, first century Jewish and Roman historian in his Antiquities of the Jews, say that the people of Magog are the people whom the Greeks called the Scythians. This, the, the, um, uh, this is important because we know from history that the Scythians were the people group that migrated from the Middle East northward, settled uh, north of the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea, and in the region we know today as Russia and the former Soviet Union. Ezekiel 38, verse 6, as well as verse 15, speak of the people coming from the north, 
Ezekiel 38.2 tells us they come from the north parts, but the Hebrew word here means the far north parts or the remotest parts of the north. And any map, if you just take Israel and go straight north, Russia is all that you have there. And so Ezekiel then speaks of a future Russian dictator, military political leader who builds a military coalition to come against the nation of Israel. Why would Russia want to come to Israel? Because they need a warm water entrance into the uh, oceans of the world. The Middle East offers that. The wealth of the oil reserves in that part are overwhelming. Uh, I heard this even when in college, but the mineral deposits of the Dead Sea are so great they cannot be appraised in today's markets. The Russian the Russians have been in a financial crisis over the last 25 years. The war with Ukraine has cost them trillions of dollars. The Russian bear is unstable and desperate. The question is who comes with Russia? Notice verse number five. And again, I'm just giving you some high points on this because this is just a segment of what I want to talk to you about today. But, but look at verse number five. The first group that comes, the first nation that comes with them, it says uh, it, will, they will, it will be Persia. Now, in 1935, the government of Persia uh, specified that it would be called Iran. Persia is, is, is present-day Iran. Have anyone seen Russia and Iran working together over these last few years? Uh, is Iran hostile to Israel? Uh, they have boldly suggested Israel should be wiped off of the map. Much I could say about that. Ethiopia is the next one. The Hebrew word, however, is Kush, which we know to be present-day Sudan, which is a radical Islamic Sunni state closely allied with both Iran and Russia. All three hate Israel. You have Libya is the next one, but it's the Hebrew word put. Joseph, uh, Josephus identifies put as the ancient Libyans. The territory today that we know as Libya is 96% Sunni Muslim and Algeria, which is 98 to 99% Sunni Muslim. Both of these countries are deeply hostile to Israel and closely allied with Russia presently. And then you have Gomer, which is present-day Turkey in verse 6. They're 99% Sunni Muslim. And what's interesting is Turkey in 1949 was the first Muslim state to recognize the nation of Israel. And they had a pretty good relationship till about 15 years ago. Today, they, those countries are at great odds. Even this last week, Turkish President Erdogan, in his strongest comments on the Gaza conflict, said Wednesday at the Palestinian militant, said that the Palestinian militant group Hamas was not a terrorist organization, but a liberation group fighting to protect Palestinian lands. I could continue to go on, but you just need to know all these places. So Israel comes back into the land, 36 and 7. 38 and 9 is a war led from Russia, Iran, and these Muslim nations. Do we see this falling into place? The next, and I, you know, I could go through 38 and chapter 39, but by chapter 40, and, is, and, and, and what will Christ do? Is he going to let them to destroy them? Look at verse 17 of Ezekiel 38. Thus saith the Lord God, art thou he of whom I spoke in old time by my servants, the prophets of Israel, which prophesied in those days many years that I would bring thee against them? God is bringing these nations against Israel as well to fulfill his purpose. And it shall come to pass at that time, just like God brought the Egyptian army to the Red Sea. And it shall come to pass at that same time when Gog shall come against the land of Israel, saith the Lord, that my fury shall come up in my face. Anybody want to stand in the face of God's fury? 
For in my jealousy and in my fire of my wrath have I spoken. Surely in that day there shall be great shaking in the land of Israel, so that the fishes of the sea, the fowls of the heavens, the beasts of the field, creeping things that creep on the earth, and all men that are upon the face of the earth shall shake at my presence. And the mountains shall be thrown down, and the steep places shall fall. Is this not Revelation 6, when people are like, hide us from the face of the wrath of the Lamb? Verse 21, and I will call for a sword against him throughout all my mountains, saith the Lord God, every man's sword against his brother. Uh, he will plead against them. Verse 23, thus will I magnify myself, sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations. They shall know that I am the Lord. And you go into chapter 39 is the destruction of Gog's uh, armies. And we know this is different from the battle of Gog and Magog in Revelation 20 because that battle goes straight into eternity and you have the dissolving of the heaven and earth. Where after this, you have years of life on earth. It goes into even burning the weapons for, for seven years. So I just want you to see that that is in place, that those things are happening uh, that we just need to be aware. Uh, so does that is somewhat of the introduction to today's sermon. I want to jump into what I want to talk about. The rest of the, this time, I want to look at the next event on God's timetable, which is the rapture of the church. I want to answer some questions. I've been intrigued because I've, had, I've actually had a few people this last week say, what is the rapture? I don't, I've never really heard of that before. People that, that haven't maybe been at Lighthouse very long, and then people in the community have even brought stuff like that up to me. So I, 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 this, is, this is very important. So I'm going to answer the question of what is the rapture? Is the rapture the same thing as the second coming of Christ? How do we know it will happen? When will it happen? And how should we, how should we prepare for that? How should we re respond and how should it affect us? So, so first of all, what is the rapture? Uh, go back to 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter number 4. Now, somebody might say, you know, the word rapture is not in the Bible, Pastor Josh. I'm like, well, the word Trinity isn't either. But the teaching is of the Trinity very clearly. And the teaching of the rapture is. The word of rapture comes from the Greek word harpazo. In 1 Thessalonians 4.17, it, it is the word caught up. Caught, and so instead of saying the caught up of the church, the catching away of the church, we use the word rapture, which just means the catching away of the church. So it just, that, it's just defining what is going on. Harpazo is the same word used when spirit was caught up of the spirit into the wilderness. It's the same word when Paul said he was caught up into the third heaven in 2 Corinthians 12. It's, it's a word that means an irresistible force snatching or taking someone away. And here it speaks of God taking or catching up the church from earth to heaven. Secondly, is the rapture the same thing as the second coming of Christ? And the answer is no. The rapture is not the second coming of Christ. They are separated by at least seven years. The second coming of Christ, also known as the second advent, is at the end of the seven-year tribulation. The rapture comes prior to any events of the tribulation starting. At the rapture, Jesus comes in the air. At the second coming, Jesus comes to the earth. At the rapture, Jesus comes for the saints. At the second coming, Jesus comes with his saints in Revelation 19. At the rapture, the saved meet the Lord in the air and go to be with the Lord forever. At the second coming, the righteous return with Christ, defeat the Antichrist, and set his kingdom up on earth. The rapture is always imminent, which means there's no signs leading up to it. It could happen at any moment. 
The Bible says no man knows the day or the hour. But the second coming of Christ comes at the end of the seven-year tribulation. The days are numbered down to the very exact day. At the rapture, the Lord snatches away true believers from the earth. But the second coming, he takes the unbelievers from among the saved. At the, um, Matthew 24, 37, listen to this passage. It says, and by the way, if you're not familiar, we put all of, I put all of my, my outline, my notes, not my notes, but my, um, the verses and the outline online. So if you ever want those, you can, if you have our app, church app, you can go on there and get those. Uh, you can download those so you, so you have the verses. Um, and so, but Matthew 24, 37 says this, but as the days of Noah were, so also shall the coming of the son of man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark. And notice what verse 39 here says. And knew not until the flood came and took them what? So were they taken away in blessing or in judgment? In judgment. Now look what he says next. So shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Then shall two be in the field. Let me ask you, do you want to be the one taken then? No, you don't want to be taken. <laughs> Just like the flood came and took them all away, so when the Son of Man comes, two will be in the field, one's taken. You don't want to be the one taken. One's taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and the other left. This is also found in Matthew 13, 49. So shall it be at the end of the world. The angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. So when he comes back the second time, he's removing the lost from among the saved. But here in 1 Thessalonians 4, he's catching away the saved from among the lost. Do you see the difference? Raise your hand if you get that. Okay, so that's important to know, isn't it? Because you have, you have people who believe the rapture in the second coming are the same thing. It's not the same thing. It's not the same thing. So, uh, more I could say about that. Third point I want to share with you. How do you know the rapture will happen? Uh, because the Bible says so. It's enough for me, right? Jesus and Paul both spoke of this clearly. Uh, so, 1 Thessalonians 4, notice verse 16. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, Paul again is talking to the church at Thessalonica. He's giving them comfort because they're loved ones who have died. He's letting them know that they will see them again. Verse 16, he says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ. Those are people who have died in the Lord. They're saved and they've, they've been physically dead, but their spirits are with the Lord. They will rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. Notice what he says. To meet the Lord where? In the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. So that's the catching away of the church. And they say, why did the dead in Christ rise first? Because they have six feet further to go, right? But you say, so my loved one who died, they're still in the ground. Their body is, but their spirit is with the Lord. The Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the 
Lord. So their spirit is with the Lord, their body's in the ground, but God's going to give them a glorified body. Jesus was the first fruit, and we are the harvest. The church is the harvest. And when that happens, that's going to, uh, they're going to be reunited and have a glorified body. Now, 1 Corinthians 15 also speak of this. 1 Corinthians 15 is the greatest chapter in the Bible on the resurrection. It says this in verse 15, now this I say unto you, Say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, you need a body suited for the celestial realm. Neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Your corruptible body can't go to that place. Behold, I show you a mystery. This is something that had been veiled in the past that is now revealed. We shall not all sleep. Euphemism for Christians dying. We will not all sleep, not all die, but we shall all be changed. So there is a group of people that will not die. I really would like to plan to be a part of that group. I am all in. If the Lord so chooses, if he wants me to die, I'm happy with that. But I would even be more glad if I could be alive. Wouldn't that be great? You get to heaven one day and somebody says, man, you know, I died in a fire. Or I died in you know, cancer. And you're like, how did you die? You're like, you know, I, I never did. Just went right up. And they're like, oh. God's sovereign. Amen. Verse 52, he says, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So based on these two passages, you can clearly see there is a teaching of the rapture, the catching away of the church. Now, Jesus also spoke about this. In John 14, Jesus is at the end of his earthly ministry. He promises his disciples a future home in heaven with him. He clearly tells them he is coming back to receive them to himself. John 14, 1, he says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. He said, I go and prepare a place for you. That is marriage language. We're not Jewish, so we don't get it. You just need to understand among Jews in that day, a man would, would come into a contract of a proposal, uh, um, a spouse to be married, like Joseph was a spouse to, to marry, to be married, and uh, that, that basically what we term as an engagement, but it was like a marital contract, but they were physically separated, not living together. And during that year, it, it both allowed the man to go prepare a home for his bride, but also uh, validated her purity. When the home was prepared... The husband would come back, they would have a marriage feast, and he would bring her to his home. You know what happens at the rapture? We go to heaven, and guess what? The Bible says there is a marriage supper of the Lamb. While the seven-year tribulation is going on on earth, the Lord is blessing us in heaven with that glorious time. So he says, in my, that's what he's talking about. All the Jews understood this. We don't because we're Gentiles. Verse 2, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place, I will come again, receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. He's taking us off the earth to go to heaven with him. It's not coming back in heavens with Jesus. That's at the end of the seven-year tribulation. Now, John eleven twenty five. he also speaks about this. John 11 is the, the, the situation with Jesus talking to Mary and Martha. Their brother Lazarus had died. Jesus is here talking about the resurrection. And he says something that can be extremely confusing if you don't understand the rapture. 
John eleven twenty five. 25, Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. So when will the dead be resurrected? At the rapture. And look what he says next. And whosoever liveth, who's alive during that day, and believeth in me shall what? Believest thou this? That statement makes no sense if you don't understand the rapture. Like, what do you mean they'll never die? I'm sure some of you have read that before and said, what does that even mean? Some will believe and they'll never die. Well, he's talking about the rapture. That's, that's what he's referring to because he's talking about when the resurrection happens and the church is raptured up, then they, there's some that will never die. Now, uh, what happens during the rapture? What happens during the rapture? Let me give you five basic things that happen at the rapture. The first thing that happens is Jesus Christ returns. The Lord himself, verse 16 of 1 Thessalonians 4, shall descend from heaven. After Jesus' death and resurrection, he returned in Acts chapter number 2. There will be a great shout given. It is not clear who makes that shout, but most likely it is Christ. It seems to be the shout of a command of the king who calls his people forth. This, this is very similar. Do you remember in John 11 when Jesus was at the tomb of Lazarus? It says in John eleven forty three 43 that Jesus cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. There's going to be a day when the Lord cries with a loud voice and every grave of the believers will burst forth at the command of Christ. And it has been said if Jesus didn't quantify that statement by saying Lazarus, every grave would have been opened. John 5, 25, verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and they that hear shall live. That was happening when he was on earth in a small portion. But when he comes back again, that the king of kings is going to declare and praise God for his power to raise the dead. Now the shout will be followed by the voice of the archangel. Jude 9 refers to Michael as the archangel. There will be a trump of God or trumpet of God. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 52 say, In a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. Trumpets were used among the Jews for several purposes. For celebration, for feasts, for war. And also they used trumpets to summons people to themselves. So this is a trumpet that summons the dead in Christ to the resurrection and declares victory over the enemies. And it's also a trumpet of warning. That's why the, uh, some of the opening judgments after the seal judgments are the trumpet judgments as well. Uh, secondly, there will be a resurrection. So the Lord returns first. Secondly, there's a resurrection. Who will be resurrected? Verse 16 says, the dead in Christ shall rise first. And uh, now who are the dead in Christ? These are the believers from the day of Pentecost. Listen, these are the church age saints. There were believers before then, but listen, they were not in Christ. They were Old Testament saints. The Bible teaches, and you need to know this, uh, there will be a resurrection at the end of the seven-year tribulation period when God turns his attention back to the nation of Israel. The final week of Daniel's prophecy is fulfilled, and the Jewish saints will be resurrected as well as the saints who died during the seven-year tribulation. That's, so the, the, the resurrection that happens at the beginning of the seven-year tribulation, uh, or the, at the rapture and at the end, are both referred to as the first resurrection. They're separated by seven years. But that's what Daniel 12, 1 and 2 refer to. 
Now, these dead in Christ will be raised immediately before the living in Christ are transformed. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 says the dead in Christ shall rise first, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Now, they'll be raised first, but it's going to be instantaneously. Uh, that we're going to be changed. 1 Corinthians 15 says it will happen in the twinkling of an eye. That, that's not the time it takes to blink. That's the time it takes for light to refre- reflect off of your eyeball. In, in a moment, you're going to be changed. Wouldn't, isn't it going to be great? Wouldn't it be great like us? Uh, you, know, you, had to, you had that 15-page paper due the next day? No, that's silly, but not really sometimes. But, uh, but if you had some big, you know, but wouldn't it be great, though, if you were at your bedside with a loved one? And the rapture happened. There's no separation of any time. What a wonderful day. There will also be a rapture, verse 17 says. They will be caught up. They will be raptured up. Um, this is referring, uh, again, we've already talked about that, the rapture. Number four, there will be a transformation. Uh, God is going to give us a new body. Uh, what will our bodies be like? Um, Philippians, I know we live in a day of people loving their selfies, but praise God, we won't look so much like us. We will look like him. Philippians 3.20 says, for our conversation is in heaven from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. How does God define our bodies? Who shall change our vile body? It'd be hard to take a lot of selfies when you have a vile body, right? So please slow that down. Uh, That it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body. 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not, yet, doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Anybody want a body like Jesus' glorified body? Do we feel worthy of that? No. Is that a gift of grace? Yes. It will be, what kind of body is it? It will be like Christ. It will be an incorruptible body. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty three says, For this corruptible must put on incorruption. This is the idea of a body that cannot perish. It cannot decay. The good news is our brand new body can never grow old. It can never wear out. It can never hurt. It can never uh, die. Uh, You will have perfect hips, perfect knees, back, eyes, ears. Your teeth will all be in place, and you will have all of your hair, (laughs) and it will never wear out. Anybody, that sound like a pretty good deal so far? You will be in an eternally perfected state that has no ability to deteriorate at any time. You will never have an eye exam. There will be no doctors. You will never see. You will laugh at the idea of an exam. You, you will be stuck in perfection. People say, I, you know, I can't believe. How is there a God? How could he allow? And it's like, do we even understand what he has waiting for us? Why do you think Jesus died at 33 and wasn't grieved that he couldn't get to live till he was 75. What do you think John the Baptist, why do you think these men did not lament that they didn't get to live long on the earth? If we knew what heaven was like, and that day when we get a glorified body, friends, um, it will also be an immortal body. 1 Corinthians 15, 53 says, For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Why will this transformation take place? The Bible says that we must put on immortality and we must put on incorruption. 
just like God created fish with scales to live in that environment and birds with feathers to live in that environment and humans with skin, so there is a terrestrial body and a celestial body, a body made for earth and a body made for heaven. We're going to get one of those bodies. That's the fourth thing that will happen. And then fifth, there will be a reunion. Paul says that we will be caught up together, notice, with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Anybody have someone in heaven that you miss? Someone that you long to see? Someone who's a saved believer that you wish you could just talk to one more time? Can you imagine the moment in a split second you're brought up into the glorious heaven and you know that all of your toil is over? You know that all of your labor is done. You know that you are now with your Lord in a perfected state. You couldn't sin if you wanted. What a freedom. And then to see your loved ones at that place. Do you think that should cause us to get a little bit more serious about our faith? Paul, did you see that football game? Yeah, it's okay to talk about that, but do you know Christ? Do you know the Lord Jesus? If you have family and friends that don't know Christ... What on earth are you waiting for? You can't save them, but you can tell them. You can tell them. We're, we're creating a little card at our church, and we almost have it completed, but it just has the church logo on it, the times, and then it's got a little QR code on the back with me sharing the gospel, and then another video we'll have where they have information about the church, but you can just say, hey, why don't you take a moment and, and, and look on there and listen, and, and you can find out how you could be in heaven and, and give them a, you could personally give them a gospel presentation, but, but giving them a way to, to hear the truth of salvation. But listen, don't put that off. Share Christ. Now, when will the rapture happen? Well, the Bible tells us it's imminent, which means it could happen at any moment. This is the signless event. And when we say imminent, and that's, that's what simply we mean, it could come at any moment. There's no signs that have to happen for, that to hap- for, for, the, for it to come. Now, now we, believe, we believe in what's known as a pre-tribulational view of the rapture, which means we believe the rapture happens before any of the events of the seven-year tribulation period. We also believe in what's known as premillennialism, which means that the second coming of Christ happens before the millennial kingdom. Why do we believe that? Because if you just read your Bible, that's what it says. And I'm not trying to be mean to people that are amillennialists, but people who don't believe in a millennial reign of Christ, I'm like, it just doesn't make any sense to me. It says it six times in Revelation 20. He'll reign for a thousand years, reign for a thousand years, reign for a thousand years. How do you, it's just, it's just what, the, so you have two choices. Either you believe the Bible means what it says, or you allegorize it to mean something it doesn't say. And if the Bible doesn't mean what it says, then how do you know what the analogy would be? How do you know what the allegory of it would be? It's extremely presumptuous. So we just take the Bible as what it says. And let me give you, I I have a dozen reasons here, but I don't have time to tell you all a dozen of them. So why do we believe in a pre-tribulational view? Let me just cut this down as fast as I can as clear as I can. First of all, saints are said to be delivered from the wrath to come. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says, And to wait for his Son from heaven, which he hath raised from the dead, and we're waiting for his Son from heaven, as John 14, as 1 Thessalonians 4 says, which delivered us from the wrath to come. 
What is the wrath to come? Revelation 6.17 says, For the great day of his wrath is come. This is the tribulation wrath he's talking about. And 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says, He has delivered us, which is a present tense verb. He has already delivered us. It's, it's, it's already happened. He's delivered us from that coming wrath. The Bible says God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation. Secondly, the church has promised deliverance from the hour of trial. Romans, or Revelation 3.10, he's addressing the church at Philadelphia, which is a representation of the true believing church. Revelation 3.10 says, Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I will also keep thee from the hour of temptation. That is the parousia. It can be translated as temptation or testing, probably better translated as trial or testing, which shall come upon all the world to try or to test them. It's the same word, parousia, uh, them that dwell on the earth. So the word from is the Greek word ek, which means out of, and the idea is clearly that the church is kept out of this trial that's coming on, it says, all the world. John MacArthur rightly states in the Greek, the phrase, I will also keep you from, can mean nothing other than I will prevent you from entering into. So God's going to keep his church from entering into this. Thirdly, God's previous dealings with people such as Noah and Lot point toward God's desire to deliver his people from judgment that this world will face. 2 Peter 2.9 says, The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. He knows how to do that. Now, Lot was removed from the city by the angels who were going to destroy the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. Listen to Genesis 19. It says this in verse 15, and when the morning arose, then the angels hastened Lot saying, arise, take thy wife and thy two daughters, which are here, lest thou be consumed in the iniquity of the city. Notice this. While he lingered, the men, these two angels, laid hold upon his hand and upon the hand of his wife and upon the hand of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful unto him. And they brought them forth and set him without the city. The angels took them out of the city. Verse 22 says, the angels said, haste thee, escape thither. Notice what they say, for I cannot do anything till thou become thither. Therefore, the name of the city is called Zor. The angel said, we can't bring the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah till we get the believers out. It's exactly what's going to happen in the rapture. Fourthly, the church is seen in heaven before the events of the tribulation. In Revelation 4, the 24 elders represent the church. They're clothed in white raiment as the church is. Listen to what, what I'm going to tell you. The book of Acts is the launch of the church. The book of Romans is the constitution of the church, if you would. Then you have uh, the, the focus of the church from, from Acts to Revelation chapter 3 is, is, is what it's all written to. It's written to churches or to pastors of churches, uh, one letter to a, an individual, Philemon. But when you come to Revelation chapter 4, 1 and 2, John is taken up into heaven. Chapter 4 and 5 is the scene in heaven before the events of the tribulation start. The 24 elders seen in heaven in robes are clearly representative of the church. Then you go to chapter 6 through chapter 18, and not one word of the church being on earth is mentioned. So from Acts to Revelation 3, it's all about the church. Revelation 4 and 5, the scene is in heaven. 
John is taken up, scene of the church up in heaven, chapter 6 through 18, nothing's talked about of the church being on earth. Nothing. Not one time. I want you to consider this. 19 times the Greek word for church, ekklesia, is used in Revelation 1 through 3. During the period of tribulation from Revelation 6 through 18, the church isn't mentioned even once on earth. Not even once. But the Jewish nation is because it's the time of Jacob's trouble or Jacob's whose name was changed to Israel. Israel, the nation of Israel's trouble. That's a seven-year tribulation. It's for the Jewish the purpose of it, the church ages over, the mystery of the church is over, God turns his attention back to the nation of Israel. There, there, there's, there's multiple other reasons I could give you. Um, there, there are no warning signs to the church how to endure the tribulation. The Holy Spirit is said to be taken off the earth during that time uh, before the Antichrist could come, according to Second Thessalonians chapter 2. When you compare the rapture passages to judgment passages, it's clear that there's no mention of judgment at all. And this last point will be very confusing unless you understand eschatology. But if Christ were to rapture up the Christians at the uh, end of the tribulation and then wipe out all the lost, who would be entering into the millennial kingdom to populate it? There'd be no one there to populate it. I've never had anybody with an amillennial view or a post-tribulational view be able to answer that. So how should, the, and, and if you're confused about that, I don't have time to explain it, okay? <laughs> so that's the benefit of studying the Word of God. Sometimes you'll be able to catch more out of these sermons than if you don't, but, or you can go back and listen to it again, or I could just write a book and give it to you. Now, but there's many great authors, but how should the rapture affect us? Let me, let me give you some things. First of all, you need to be prepared. If, if there's ever a day that you prepare yourself to meet the Lord, you need to do it now. I'm serious. If you're playing around with sin, you're caught up in some sexual relationship that's out of line with God, you have some family members that are lost and you're just willy-nilly playing video games and getting caught up in fantasy football, nothing wrong with watching news, nothing wrong with fantasy football, nothing wrong with things in the world, but there is something wrong when I can't focus my life in what really eternally matters because I'm so caught up with the cares of this life. You need to make sure that you're right with God. You need to be clean before the Lord. Listen, I'm not saying Jesus is coming back today. He could. I'm not saying he's coming back this year. He could. I'm not saying he's coming back for sure in my lifetime, but I believe he will. It's up to the Lord. Nobody knows the day or hour, but I'm just telling you the things in the Bible, and I could give you 10 other... Ezekiel and the nation of Israel, like two out of 10 major signs that I could give you today, I don't have time to... That, that are just clearly pointing to the return of Christ. There are some things just lining up and you just need to know it so that if the rapture happens, you'll be like, you were talking about this or I don't want to get up to heaven and people say, why didn't you ever preach on this, Pastor Josh? Why, why, why did you, why were there things going on in the world? And, and I've heard preachers say this. I've, I've heard guys say, you know what? I don't want to get into the book of Revelation because I just don't understand it. So they stay out of it. Is that helpful for people? Is that beneficial? Isn't it nice to know these things are coming to pass? Isn't it nice to know that, hey, there's a verse that applies to that? Isn't it nice to know when you see the events going on in Israel that you can have a biblical worldview as you see that? That when you watch the news, you're like, hey, I know what side I should be on in this thing. I should be on the side of God, which is to pray for Israel, which is to pray for God's will to be done, but to also, I know what, where the side God lands when he comes back on this. Now, should... It should cause us to be prepared. Secondly, it should cause you to praise the Lord. You should be worshipful. 
People say, you know, it makes me, you know, I've heard people say this stuff. I'm really, you know, fearful and stuff like that. And it's, there's, it's, there's nothing to be afraid of. Uh, it should cause you to praise the Lord. The Bible tells us at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, it says, Thanks be to God, which gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What is fearful if, if we had a God who didn't know what's coming? If we had a God who, you, you know, in Islam, there's, there's multiple reasons why I could never be a Muslim, but one is he uh, consummated a marriage with a nine-year-old. Anybody want to be in that religion? People should be put to death for such things. Uh, that would be the first thing that would forever keep me from that. But do you know Muhammad didn't even know if he was going to heaven, who they say is a greater prophet than Jesus? Again, I, I've said in the past, Muslims are not our enemies, they're the mission field. We pray for them to be saved, amen? We long for them to come to Christ. We care for them because we were like them. We were lost at some point in our life, not serving Christ, enemies of the gospel. We didn't know Jesus. We were caught up in our own delusions and, 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 and false thinking. We should long for that. But, but, but Muhammad didn't even know if he's going to heaven. We, we don't serve a God like that. We serve a God who knows what's coming. We can worship him today. Thirdly, it should cause us to be faithful in service. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, it says, Be steadfast, unmovable. This is the last verse of 1 Corinthians 15. How does, the, how does Paul end when he ends talking about the resurrection? He says, Therefore, my beloved brother, knowing all this is coming, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Notice the next phrase, for you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Anybody glad knowing that everything you do for Jesus is never wasted? I forget who I was talking to the other day, but they said, they said, something you preached on the other day has just so revolutionized my outlook on life. They said, I know, they were saying about you know, sometimes being frustrated to clean up after their husband or their kids and just stress, you know. They say, now I realize I'm not simply doing it for them, I'm doing it for the Lord. So when I go clean the dishes up, when I go clean this up, when I go serve in things around the house and do this and that, I'm doing this to honor Christ. And, and, and the family members are like, man, you know, her, her outlook has just changed, like how she's handling all this stuff, and it's just so much more peace in the home. Do you understand? You, you, can, you can have eternal rewards by picking socks up. Does that change your outlook? The Bible says when you go to work, do it as unto the Lord and not as unto men, Ephesians chapter 6. Is that helpful? That knowing that you're not serving that boss, you're serving the King Jesus. And everything you do is full-time ministry. So go home, ladies, and cook that meal up. Men, go home and cook that meal up. Go home and serve your spouse, serve your husband, serve your wife, serve your families, love your parents, love your children, serve this... Listen, be faithful. Know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. You're not, your life isn't wasted. Third, third, fourthly, it should cause us to take comfort, and, uh, take comfort and encourage one another. The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 4.18, he says, Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. We should edify one another. Hey, the Lord's coming back. Praise God. Isn't that good? Remind one another of this. This is what the New Testament church did. We've had such home field advantage for all this time in America where Christianity was so positive. But listen, we're not on home field territory anymore. And we're getting a small portion of what the early church who wrote this New Testament, the early Christians who wrote this, the believers, uh, what they went through. It wasn't easy for them. They faced great persecution. 
We have it so we have so blessed, but but even in the trials that we face, we can encourage one another. Number five, if you're not saved, you need to you're not prepared for the rapture. You'll be left behind. If you're sitting in here today and you hear this, and you can hear the sound of my voice, and if I were to ask you if you stood before God and He said, Why should I let you into heaven? You're like, I don't know what I would say. If you don't know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, if your life has not been defined as one who has lived for Jesus. You say, oh, I've prayed prayers of salvation. Let me ask you this. Uh, you can pray a prayer. Many will say they know him. And Jesus said, I'll say to them, I don't know you. Jesus said, the narrow path leads to life. Few find it. Broad as the path leads to destruction. Many are on it. So listen, there's got to be a time when you've truly committed your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Doesn't mean perfection, but it does mean direction. It means you turn away from the old way of living and you turn to Christ. You say no to sin and yes to Jesus. You confess him as your Lord and your Savior. And he saves you and changes you from the inside out. If you don't know him, if the rapture happens, I'm going to tell you, you're going to face in some level hell on earth. In fact, hell will be opened up to earth. Did you hear me? God's, there, there are demons in Tartarus. It's a, it's a Greek word for a compartment in hell where the worst of the demons, God caged. And he's going to unleash those demons on this earth during the seven-year tribulation period. You say, you're trying to scare me? No, I'm trying to tell you the truth. The Bible says in Matthew 24, 21, Jesus said, For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. If you want to escape that reality, then you need to flee to Jesus. What must one do to be saved? You need to recognize that you're a sinner. You need to recognize that if you stood before God, that you are not good enough to get to heaven. I'm a pastor, but I'm no better than anybody in this room. I can't get to heaven by preaching, by serving, or anything like that. The Bible says, Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Sin is breaking God's laws. And some of God's laws are like the Ten Commandments. And some of those commands say things like, Do not lie. Don't take God's name in vain. Don't commit adultery. Honor your parents. And if you and I sin three times a day, which is very easy to do, for a year, that's over a thousand sins. Just consider how many years you've lived and how many sins you committed. You're going to stand before God one day. And the Bible says, all the world will be found guilty before God. And if you're found guilty, Revelation 21.8 makes it extremely clear that even all liars, God says, will have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. You'll be cast out. But today, the good news is you're literally here because God loves you enough to bring you into earshot of his eternal word, and he's willing to save you today if you would humble yourself and come and say, God, I'm not good enough to get to heaven, but Jesus, you are good enough to save me, and I put all my faith in you alone. And if that's you today and you don't know Christ, we'll have men and women standing at the front. You could come down and say, I want to know that answer, and they'll pull you aside in a private room and show you how to be saved.